we call it rooting your identity. That really brings people close to the ground and feeling powerful and connected. So that's what we're trying to do, whether the links or whatever, just bringing the community to celebrate, to have fun, to dance, but to also show that, hey, it's not that hard. And with our own hands, we can do so much. I am so lucky today to have Astrid Vargas with me. Astrid is my friend and she's a true rewilding hero. Astrid was one of the leading proponents and architects of a plan that sought to save the world's rarest big cat at the start of the 2000s. That is, of course, the Iberian lynx that was down to just 90 individuals in the wild. Because of successful advocacy by Astrid and others, a captive breeding and reintroduction program funded by the European Commission and by the Portuguese and Spanish governments, has succeeded in boosting numbers of this extraordinary rare cat up from 90 to almost 1,700 in the wild today. Astrid, really, it's an unbelievable achievement. And thank you so much for joining me in this Rewilding the World podcast to tell us about it. How did you come to be involved with Iberian Lynx? How did this start? I've always had a passion for nature since I was six years old. I was just fascinated with animals and I've dedicated all my life to the recovery of critically endangered species. So I work, uh, I did my PhD on the black-footed ferret. There were 10 individuals left in the wild. We trained them for survival and then we, we learned how to reintroduce them into the wild. And then from that, I've been working on different species like um, Madagascar with lemurs. And then in Spain with the Iberian lynx and all those different experiences have helped build a good foundation for the program. So what happened to the Iberian lynx? Because in 1960, it's estimated that there were around 10,000 lynx in Spain. Yes, it's correct. And they were in several meta populations. So you didn't have them all in the same basket. It had a lot to do with the rabbits. I mean, the, the conservation of the lynx has to do with the conservation of the rabbits. And rabbits had been subject to two very awful viral diseases that have decimated their numbers. And that really affected the Iberian lynx. So it was a lot to do with a loss of habitat. And also, of course, there's overhunting and uh, road kills and a lot of things. But mostly is like their prey base was really hammered by diseases. It, it's worth us dwelling a, a moment on, on, on myxomatosis. This is a virus that was effectively designed by humans to control rabbit numbers in Australia. Rabbits are not native to Australia. They were taken there by European colonists and they caused absolute ecological mayhem. And the solution was to invent a virus that would kill them. The virus inevitably was then brought to Europe. And I read somewhere that a French gardener introduced the virus in his garden in the Pyrenees and rabbits throughout the Iberian Peninsula were decimated. Spain is a derivative of the word Hispania, which is ancient Greek for land of rabbits. That's how ubiquitous rabbits once were on the Iberian Peninsula. And their numbers were decimated, and with it, the Iberian lynx collapsed. And by the time you got involved, Astrid, there were fewer than 100 lynx remaining in the wild across the whole of the Iberian Peninsula. Yes. So what was the plan? Well, there was always a lot of controversy to get at the few lynx that there were a few of those back into captivity. And these decisions always create a lot of tension in conservation and breeding programs and conservation programs in general. So there was a lot of pressure from Europe and a lot of shame in Spain not to have another wild cat go extinct. Nothing has gone extinct since the, in terms of wild cats since the saber tooth 
a tiger and it was like shame on Spain. You have this, you're a rich country relatively and this species is really, really about to go extinct and you should do something about it. So there was a concerted effort between administrations in Europe and in Spain, because in Spain, of course, we have autonomic governments and there were different political signs. So it was a very political issue to decide actually to start a captive breeding program. And it was done by actual political will from two opposite parties, because there was a lot of pressure on Spain because, you know, there were so few lynxes and it would be embarrassing for it to go extinct with the resources that could be deployed to save them. So initially, the environmental community kicked up a fuss both at home in Spain and Portugal and internationally, and pressure was brought to bear on the European Commission and then the Spanish and Portuguese governments to do something. When did action begin? The kickoff point was a meeting that there was in 2001, just to bring what is the actual conservation status. It was uh, promoted by um, the Spanish central government, the Andalusian government and the IUCN. So we had people, experts in cats coming from all over the world. And it was clear that something needed to be done. So probably 2001, it took two years to make the decision of starting a solid captive breeding program. There were links in captivity, but there was not an approved program that everybody could embrace. So probably 2001 was the alarm call of like this species can go extinct. And 2003 is when we started captive breeding with controversy. <laughs> with controversy from who? Well, from from a different groups that had not gelled well together before. And, and it happens quite often that it's a, this dichotomy is like biologists versus veterinarians. For example, the biologists are always uh, caring about the population, the veterinarians about the individual. And in this kind of recovery programs, that creates tension. And also between field biologists and um, captive breeding biologists too, there was tensions. So there was a lot of just building bridges first. And also there was political tension because there was the central government that had the mandate to conserve the links, but the links were all in Andalusia and Andalusia has its own government. And they were from different political signs. The central government at the time was conservative and the Andalusian government was socialist. And there was... A moment is like we cannot use this animal that's about to go extinct as a weapon, as a political weapon. We have to really find a way to find common ground. And they found common ground. So that that was a good moment for the lynx. And how many captive breeding centers were established? Where were they? And how many lynx were taken from the wild, more or less, to build that captive population? At the time, there was only Jerez Zoo and Acebuche, which is in Doñana National Park, and now there are five centers nowadays. Uh, there were four links in captivity and there was the agreement to bring a few females, a few males, I think all together. We may have brought from the wild over a three-year period about 20-something links, but those started reproduction what, what, uh, to reproduce in 2005, so fairly quickly. And the, the projections was that by 2010, we could start reintroduction and eventually we'll be able to release between 30 and 40 lynxes per year. And that's that the projections were met. What does a pair of lynx require in captivity in order to breed successfully? Well, chemistry first. They like to, they need to like each other. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. they don't and they fight. So first of all, they need to like each other. And good conditions. Uh, basically, 
not to be stressed out, to have space. I mean, it, it depends. They probably can breed in pretty extreme conditions too. But we found that if we recreate nature in captivity, the animals are comfortable, they have places to hide and to be. So it depends, but they require good care and space. And the first few offspring that were produced in those early years were kept in captive breeding in order to expand that population. Yes. But eventually you needed to start releasing young lynx into the wild. What did it take in order to train those young captive-born lynx to survive in the wild? How do they know how to hunt, for example? Hunting is a whole amazing process. Hunting and uh, has two components, searching for prey and killing. And they're completely different. One animal can really be a good killer, but can't search for prey. So you have to take into consideration both aspects. And the way we have learned over the years to train them is to completely disconnect the connection between the keeper and the food. So what we develop, so it's like trees with different roots that have exits, and we would put rabbits inside those trees protected during the day, and then a timer would open in the middle of the night or at different times and would allow the rabbit to go out. So the blinks would see the keepers coming and, and leaving something, but the rabbits, the food would not come until hours later. So that's part of the training, so that disconnect the relationship between the human and the food. And then um, usually moms are very good teachers. I, I've seen mothers that are very not very good killers, but they are very good teachers of how to kill. It's kind of bizarre, but that's the way it goes. So if uh, there's a component of um, an age component, so if a lynx learns to kill earlier, it's a better hunter than if it learns as an adult, like, um, you know, animals that have been in captivity and they are not given prey until they are adults, which is what we had at the beginning. There were four animals in captivity and they didn't know how to hunt, but they could kill, <laughs> but they couldn't hunt. Well, Astrid, when the time came to start releasing young lynx into the wild, what preparation needed to be done in those landscapes to restore them? Because, of course, lynx had died out for a reason and that reason needed to be addressed before the lynx were put back. Right. So at the time, what a place needed to be favorable for reintroductions were 10,000 uh, hectares of Mediterranean forest and maki. So it's a brush and the forest itself with good rabbit populations. And at the time, they were considered like two, three rabbits per hectare. Where they are putting the links now, they have many, many more rabbits. I mean, fortunately, I mean, what's happening with the rabbits and the diseases, it's in some places it's really bad, but there are some areas that they're getting a huge, very good recovery of rabbits. So they're How? putting, um, well, probably, you know, there are two diseases. Um, um, myxomatosis, there's more resistance to it. So so it, it doesn't make such a big mess when it comes through. But the other is hemorrhagic pneumonia. And that's still, it's newer. It's a newer disease from the 80s. And some populations are becoming more into balance with that disease. But that's the biggest challenge for lynx conservation is the diseases of the rabbits and this especially hemorrhagic pneumonia, which can wipe out entire populations of, of rabbits. And if there's lynx there, they will have no food to eat. The good thing is that the lynx don't die if they eat a bad rabbit, which is very lucky. <laughs> because, for example, the black-footed ferrets, with which I work also in the States, there were 10 individuals left in the wild, and the prairie dogs has bubonic plague. If a ferret eats a deceased prairie dogs, it will die too. At least a lynx can eat a deceased rabbit and it won't die. 
And that's luck. <laughs> that's very lucky for us. A lot of the landscapes in which links were to be reintroduced are made up of private land holdings. Yes. And sometimes private land holdings with big fences. We've seen this macho um, emerging culture in southern Spain of fencing up these fi- private properties. Uh, f- fencing is a is a terrible expression of human arrogance in the landscape, in my opinion. Um, how did you handle that with, with the fact that this is private land and the fact that much of it is fenced? Yeah, it's a mix of things. I think uh, private land owners have played a humongously important role in the recovery of links, of being involved and and, and really trying to, to take advantage of funding that there was for habitat improvement, precisely for the Iberian links to get more rabbits, just the habitat itself. More food for rabbits means more links. Now, fences in Spain, it will take a whole generation, I think, to get out of that mentality. You kind of have to really close your parcel, let's say. But luckily, the Iberian lynx usually has no trouble with fences. I've, I've seen them jumping over four or five meters, like a spring, like boing. And for this species itself, it's not as big a problem as for others because lynx can, can get through. But it's really bad for biodiversity in general to fence everything out. Yep. And so the private landowners were incentivized by the state and encouraged to make their land accessible and open for links in the form of rabbits and the form of ecosystem restoration and so on. When mm-hmm. did the first links get put back into the wild? So reintroductions started in 2010 and have been going on. I was asking, I think altogether, like from the captive breeding program, they've released 338 animals. Some of the uh, reintroduction sites, the first ones were reintroduced in, in Andalusia, where the two populations uh, already were. But then they've been moving to Portugal, to Extremadura, now very soon to Granada, Murcia, and where it's been incredible in Montes de Toledo that there there's like hundreds and hundreds of lynxes, but there's about 200 lynx at every reintroduction site that there is right now. And some of them are fully formed by captive bred animals. So uh, Extremadura and Portugal, all they have populations of more than 200, all from captive breeding stock. And and this is something we were not expecting. Usually the survival rates of captive bred animals is way lower. You expect less than 50% will survive. And for the lynx, we're reaching about 70% survival of captive raised animals that have gone through training. They go through boot camp before they go out. And and 70% survival is very high. And that's why the wild populations are really increasing rapidly. Probably this uh, this year they do a census. The census from 2021, that was the last one, there were uh, more than 1,300 lynx. This year, probably way more than 1,500, I think. So they, they keep growing exponentially. It's an extraordinary story of the success of a captive breeding and reintroduction project of the kind that we need to see everywhere in the world. What about linear infrastructure cutting up the landscape? Spain has more kilometers of highway per capita than any other country in Europe. These roads must present not just a a danger to links, but a proper barrier to their expansion. What's Spain doing about that? And Portugal? Well, a lot of the money from from the life projects, a lot of what has happened to the links have come from European funds, from from life nature funds. Several dozens of millions of euros have gone, and a lot of it has gone mostly to rabbits and to infrastructures. There's so much to do yet, but there is ecoducts and underpasses. So so there's a big ecoduct in Doñana, and it's used by all the wildlife. And the, the underpasses are 
more complicated because they can get uh, uh, floated sometimes and some animals don't feel so so comfortable going through them. But there's been a lot of that, especially in hot spots, in, in really dark places where we know that a lot, lot of lynx die. But more of that needs to happen. And well, there, there's been all sorts of inventions to try to stop cars to go too far on roads where there are links around, like um, sound barriers, um, um, that sound when, when a car is approaching, light, all sorts of different things. But um, the ecoducts and the underpasses need to happen in every reintroduction site. And are there plans now to restore links to parts of Spain and Portugal which haven't had links for a very long time? For example, in the north or the northwest? Yes, the north, Valencia, places that in, in decades they haven't had links, but now they are having very good rabbit populations, like a resurgence of rabbits, so they can actually host links populations. And the, the whole idea, I think they've been quite visionary in Spain on how to approach the future of the links, because now with the animals that there are, we, it is no, no longer critically endangered. It's endangered, almost threatened. It's coming back when, when there's 350 breeding females in the wild, it'll be considered threatened. That means that it will get less support. We will get less support to, to for its conservation. But what the, the vision is to make it what they call a favorable conservation status. That means that it's an animal or an, uh, that with its presence is favoring the whole biodiversity in the area, like an, an umbrella species. So what they want with the lynx is once they pass through the threatened category in the IUCN, to make it favorable conservation status, to try to spread it all over the peninsula so it helps as an umbrella to protect Mediterranean biodiversity. Is it possible that the Iberian lynx wasn't just an Iberian species? I've read that the lynx may have been found in southern France, for example. Is that possible? And, and might the French restore this species to their territory? <laughs> that would be amazing. It'll be the... Uh, Depending on the kind of prey. So there was an ancestor of the Iberian lynx, which lived in the Pyrenees too. It was called lynx spaleus. And that probably is, is, is the real ancestor. Like, like the, the lynx that might have been in France may have been Iberian lynx or way back they were spaleus, but they should have had rabbits to it. When, uh, in, in the Pyrenees, they think it's better to have the bigger lynx, the Eurasian, because of the kind of prey that you can find there. Iberian lynx can for sure kill larger prey, but their specialization is rabbits. So they have to be in a place where there are rabbits. So if there were rabbits in southern France, probably lynx could have crossed over and settled in a good place for them. How many lynx do you think there could be if the species achieved favorable conservation status? Can you imagine that there might be as many as 10,000 lynx back in Spain and Portugal again one day? Yes, definitely. Yes, <laughs> I can imagine that. You know, a lot of it depends on drought, too, because um, it's what's happening with the black-footed ferret. So we have to be watchful about this. The black-footed ferret, there were 10 individuals. We started releasing them. After a few years, there were thousands in the wild. And then drought hit pretty hard. The United States is going through the worst period of drought since biblical times. And there's no grass. And no grass means no prairie dogs. And no prairie dogs means a lot of animals because they are the base of the food chain. In Spain, it could happen the same. I mean, the rabbits eat grass. If there's drought and there's no grass, everything goes along with the rabbits. So I can imagine 10,000 links around as long as we keep 
healthy habitat where rabbits can thrive. To move the lynx to favorable conservation status, they need 750 reproductive females. That's a lot of animals. That, so a reproductive female has to be an adult with its own territory that's breeding. So 750 of those will make the lynx a favorable conservation status. I've learned that the beaver has returned to parts of Spain and Portugal. And beavers, of course, create extraordinary ribbon wetlands through dry landscapes, which are undoubtedly refuge for uh, rabbits and other species during drought. So maybe there is a symbiosis to be seen between the Iberian lynx and the beaver. And the beavers. Everything is interconnected. Yes. <laughs> Everything, of course. is. Astrid, tell us a little bit about the inspiration for nature recovery that you see in, in Spain. Um, off the back of the recovery of lynx and in other ways? Yeah, I haven't been working directly in the lynx since uh, 2010, although I feel completely connected with the programs, with the breed reintroduction program. But I've been focusing on ecosystem restoration using this uh, model uh, developed by Commonant called the Four Returns. And the first one is inspiration. And we forget about how important it is to be inspired. By local people need to be inspired to really feel part of something bigger and this is what we're trying to do and a lot has to do with celebration so, so how do you inspire people well let's celebrate that now there's links here you know and maybe if we don't see that it doesn't matter well let's have a barbecue and some dance and this kind of putting the community together to look at an issue that has become better is a real important way to inspire the local communities that after all are the custodians of this biodiversity and you're seeing results in that respect. I mean, the places where you work in Murcia and some of the driest parts of Spain, you're seeing communities come together and you're seeing unlikely participants in ecosystem restoration, some of the old farmers and so on. Yes, yes. And we can do it through art. Like we're doing this thing, art for action. So we have this book about butterflies that all the proceeds go into buying aromatics. And we plant these aromatic plants, which are food for butterflies and other pollinators, in the shape of a butterfly. So it's creating beauty, but it's creating food for others. If you bring the community to these plantations and you say, hey, it's in our hands to change things. It's in our very hands to restore our landscapes and our nature. And we can celebrate along the process. It has an immense power. The power also of bringing young children with grandparents to do this planting uh, episode. You know, it, they are very inspirational because then in the future, when the grandparents are no longer there, the kid can say, hey, this is my sculpture, living sculpture for the butterflies that I planted with my grandparents. We call it rooting your identity. That really brings people close to the ground and feeling powerful and connected. So that's what we're trying to do, whether the links or whatever, just bring in the community to celebrate, to have fun, to dance, but to also show that, hey, it's not that hard. And with our own hands, we can do so much. So much of this is about optimism, about culture, about identity. And I think the work that you're doing really cuts to the to the core of the answer of how we get people engaged in restoring their own ecosystems, bringing missing species back and so on. And Spain seems to be at the cutting edge among European countries. In putting this podcast together, I've spoken to several individuals from Spain who are doing extraordinary things from the removal of dams and weirs and other concrete structures from rivers, restoring species, restoring landscapes. Um, I, I think there's real cause for optimism coming from the Iberian Peninsula. Uh, Astrid, just tell us a little bit about, we talk about cores, corridors and carnivores as being the big C's, the three C's of rewilding. Tell us about some of the big cores and the corridors 
that are being created in Spain in order to accommodate not just the returning lynx, but the returning wolves and the bears from the north and so on? Yeah, it's again looking at the landscape. We tend to really look at things uh, through very small scopes, but when you look at the landscape, you need to look at the connecting spots of different places. So, for example, the latest funding that the lynx has from the EU is called Life Links Connect, and it's precisely about that. How do you bring together as a, a vision of this, you know, federal conservation? What do we need to do? Where are the big sources? Where are the actual sinks for the population? And how do we create corridors, often through riparian areas or through ecoducts, so these animals can move back as they could in the past? Like right now, everything is cut by roads and big, big, very dangerous sinks where animals die when they're trying to move. So connectivity is, is fundamental. And and what was the, the the third C? So the three Cs of rewilding are cores, corridors, and carnivores. And in Spain, we're witnessing the return of Iberian lynx because of this extraordinary work, the return of wolves from the north. There's now several thousand wolves in Spain and a, a growing harmonious coexistence with wolves. And even bears, several hundred bears in Cantabria and Asturias are starting to spread south. And if the landscapes can be connected, there are other potential cores, such as the Iberian highlands and and further south. Yes. The project we're doing in southern Spain, which is 2.6 million acres of land being restored, of course, the corridors are fundamental. I mean, the, the, how to really connect sources through degraded landscapes, because what we're dealing with is lots of degradation. How do we turn around that degradation through restoration? But... Um, we are doing it a lot with agriculture, actually. It's a tool. Regenerative agriculture is a conservation tool. It's not just doing agriculture. It's for the future. It's an alternative to industrial. And the lynx can survive in agricultural landscapes as well as it can in wild landscapes. Uh, survive? No, they don't love it, really. But they can cross easily. You know, you, you can create stepping stone places where they can rest, places where they can hide, even hunt. I don't think sometimes they found links settled in crops. Like in Doñana, there was one female giving birth in some sunflowers, but they don't like that. But the agriculture, what it does, and I'm not talking only links, it can create stepping stone for links, but you are creating so much habitat for birds and for insects, for pollinators in general, not only carnivores or cursorial animals. And that's what we need, just that, that connectivity that allows wildlife to flow back again from one place to another. Yeah, we talk about the, the debate between sparing versus sharing the land. And in fact, we can do both. We spare the yes. land for wild nature, but we can share the land too by building agricultural systems which regenerate soil and restore nature and, and those become vital crossing points and also become vital habitat for humans and the humans in Spain are being inspired by your work Astrid at Common Land and we're, I'm so grateful to you for taking this time to tell us the story of how a whole species was saved from extinction by captive breeding reintroduction and landscape restoration um, it's really um, an unbelievable story of optimism and if you want to learn more about Astrid's ongoing work in Spain, inspiring people to restore nature around them, look up Inspiration for Action. It's not often that you get to speak to someone whose efforts have led to the saving of an entire species. 
it wasn't for Astrid Vargas and the others around her who cajoled the Spanish and Portuguese governments and the European Commission to step up, the Iberian lynx might well be extinct today. In fact, there's 1,600 of them. I'm so grateful to Astrid to have taken the time to tell us this story. If you've enjoyed this episode of Rewilding the World with me, Ben Goldsmith, I'd be so grateful if you'd subscribe on whatever channel you use for your podcast. Maybe leave us a rating or a review. Spread the word among your friends. It, it all really helps. Next time, I'm going to be talking to Mark Day, who's leading what is one of the largest rewilding projects in the world, the Altin Dalar, the Golden Step, which reaches across an area of Kazakhstan the size of France and Germany combined. The wildlife you'd have found there once would have been extraordinary. Mark and his team are bringing it back. Do join us next time. Thank you.